Bibles, go ahead and turn to Zephaniah. Coming down the home stretch this morning in our series through the whole Bible, or home stretch of the Old Testament, I should say. One book at a time. This morning we are in the book of Zephaniah. I think I even wrote down. If you have the red book, Bibles in front of you, 937, 740 in the black Bibles. And what I want to do this morning, when you get to Zephaniah, uh, turn over to chapter 3, and I just want to read uh, two verses for us. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you and we call upon you now to bring us truth, to bring us light, and to bring us conviction from your word. What we have just read is a sober warning for all who would ignore you, for all who would Leave your word on the shelf for all who would cease to listen to you. Father, may that never be true of any of us. And Lord, if it is for anyone who is here this morning, I pray that you would bring us back to you, that you would transform us, that you would revive our hearts. We ask now that you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things that you have prepared for us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Has anyone here ever heard of the Hayes Code or the Motion Picture Code of 1930? Oh, we got a hand here. I want to introduce you to the Hayes Code this morning. It's a fascinating read if you want to go online and read it in full afterwards. But it used to be that there was this kind of ethical code, a governing document that was penned by the president of the Motion Picture Association. We're talking about Hollywood here on what kind of things should be or could be displayed or promoted through Hollywood films in order to preserve the moral fabric of our society. So I want to give you some highlights. And as I give you these highlights, I want you to compare it to what you know of films today. Concerning crimes, brutal killings are not to be presented in detail. The use of firearms should be restricted to essentials, whatever that means. Illegal drug traffic must never be presented. Concerning sex, the sanctity of the institution of marriage and the home shall be upheld. 
pictures shall not infer that low forms of sex relationship are the accepted or common thing. Adultery, sometimes necessary plot material, must not be explicitly treated or justified or presented attractively. Excessive and lustful kissing, lustful embraces, suggestive postures and gestures are not to be shown. Complete nudity is never permitted. This includes nudity in fact or in silhouette. Concerning vulgarity, obscenity in word, gesture, reference, song, joke, or by suggestion, even when likely to be understood only by part of the audience, is forbidden. Pointed profanity. This includes the words God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, unless used reverently, or every other profane or vulgar expression, however used, is forbidden. No film or episode may throw ridicule on any religious faith. Ministers of religion, in their character as ministers of religion, should not be used as comic characters or as villains. So watch out. How many of you are shocked by this? I mean, what would have compelled the policy makers in Hollywood, which today even really by secular standards, is known for being kind of a, a moral cesspool, what would have compelled them to dare place such restrictions on the films that they created? As some of you may know, there was at one time a sense in the United States of our nation being a ethical and moral beacon in the world. I even mentioned a few Sundays ago how uh, when Boston was formed, it saw itself as a city on a hill that would be a light unto the nations. And that's not to say that this was some kind of golden age of Christianity. I don't think there's really ever been a golden age of Christianity. There were other things in this same document that you would read and kind of be shocked to hear of lingering sentiments of racism, things that we would never condone today. My only point here in, in reading this to you is that there was a time when even among Hollywood, there was a sense of wanting to be morally distinct, to be morally set apart. They recognized that there were things in films that would honor their creator and would contribute to a flourishing society. And there were also things that would bring dishonor and actually work to pull apart the fabric of society. And we fast forward to today, how many of us would have to admit that probably on a regular basis we consume various types of media that violate much, if not all, of what I just read from that code? I simply highlight that this morning to show how quickly we can go from seeing ourselves as set apart to over time becoming complacent to the point where we don't even notice all the ways that we have decayed. That's as a society. But what about as the people of God? 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's talking to the church here. If you are part of the church, hear this. You are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are called by God. We are chosen. We are holy. We are distinct from the world. We belong to God. We are called to a purpose to proclaim his excellencies. So what happens then when those who identify as the people of God no longer draw near to God, no longer draw attention to God, no longer to care, care to know anything of his excellencies, and no longer have a concern to live distinctly as his people in this world. I believe that this is, in part, what the book of Zephaniah is about. This is what Zephaniah shows us, and this is a warning for all of us today who identify as the people of God. You see, God's people, Judah, Israel, Judah, of which was the southern kingdom, the, the faithful ones, the remaining ones anyway, they were meant by God to be a set-apart nation. They were intended to be a canvas on which God would display his character and his wisdom and his beauty and glory to the surrounding world. But instead, what did they do? They became complacent in their faith. They became defiled, profane, and corrupt. I take all those words directly from the book of Zephaniah. Complacent, defiled, profane, and corrupt. It's a very tragic book because what Zephaniah essentially does is he condenses everything that we've been talking about with the prophets from Isaiah to Nahum and Habakkuk, all of those bad things, all the reasons for God's coming judgment. It kind of boils it down here into three really brief chapters to call out the utter depravity and decay, moral decay of the kingdom of Judah. They had become so much like the world around them that rather than the God who made them, that chose them, that called them, that they no longer had any light to offer the nations. They were essentially useless to God. And like Habakkuk, the setting for the book of Zephaniah is that time right before their fall, right before their big downfall, when Babylon would come in, invade, and take them into captivity. And it tells us in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. That's a lot of names, I realize, but two really big ones I want to point out here. He was in the line of Hezekiah, a good king of Israel, someone who did what was right in God's eyes. And he prophesied during the days of Josiah, Josiah who was regarded as one of the greatest kings of Judah, a good king who did what was right in the eyes of God. Josiah is actually the one who, when they found the law in the basement of the temple and it was read to him, declared national repentance and went on a campaign to remove all of the idols from the land. 
But apparently what we see from the unfolding of Judah's history is that even that repentance, at least on a national level, only lasted for a very, very brief time. So the book, as you can see, only has three chapters. The first part of the book is God's grievances and God's judgment against Judah. What they have to look forward to, or to dread, I should say, on account of their sins. There's a second part where then it turns to the nations, kind of like we've seen in the other prophets. And God says, and I'm going to gather one day, ultimately, all the nations. I'm going to judge everyone who is opposed to me, everyone who would rob glory from my creation. And then at the very end, at the very end, in the final 12 verses, we get the good news of hope and restoration for everyone who would listen. So what I want to do this morning is just a little bit different. Rather than covering all of Zephaniah and looking at each part, I want to just zero in on that one passage that we read at the beginning. I want to consider this one passage because I think it explicitly states for us what it is that led to Judah defaulting on their distinction as the people of God and serves, therefore, as a warning for us how we can avoid being a similar people who default, who forfeit our distinction in this world as the people of God. I want to read that one more time. Zephaniah chapter 3, 1 and 2. Speaking to Judah here. Speaking of Judah and the capital city, Jerusalem specifically. Woe to her who is rebellious. Listen to how she's described. Rebellious and defiled. The oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. What was it that led up to Judah losing its distinction as a light among the nations? Long before they were swept away by Babylon, what was it that for generations led up to and brought about in them such a sad and vulnerable spiritual condition? I take these from verse 2. Number one, she listens to no voice. Judah listens to no voice. Have you ever said that about someone who just doesn't seem to want to hear anything you have to say? They are completely uh, stubborn and hard-headed. He won't listen to anyone. You can, you can talk to him. You can talk to her, but she's not going to listen to anyone. What that usually means is it's not that they won't physically hear someone else speaking or that they might not consider what someone else is saying, but really what it means is that they will only listen at the end of the day. They will only take in that which they want to hear for their own good. When Zephaniah says that Judah listens to no voice, what he means is that she had become so entrenched in living her life the way she wanted to, apart from God's plan for her, that she no longer even gave consideration to God if it would challenge or run counter to her present lifestyle. 
The scriptures tell us, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is what had happened to, to Judah. They didn't want to hear from anyone unless it was somebody who would suit their own passions, tell them what they wanted to hear. But something else to note here in that statement, she listens to no voice. It's not just that Judah only wanted to hear things that would suit her own passions. But it's also the case that for many prior generations of the people of Judah, they had completely lost the word of God altogether. They were just flat out ignorant of it. They didn't know their Bibles. They didn't know the law of God. We see this in chapter 1, verse 6. It says that they are those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. They didn't even know to go to God's law to inquire of him. I mentioned earlier when Josiah was reigning, there was this time where he's wanting to help repair the temple and he sends some of his servants in to start doing the work of repairing the temple. And they actually find the book of the law as if it's this hidden treasure that no one has known about for many years. And so when they read it and they hear for many of them, probably the first time the book of Deuteronomy and the, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience, they are torn to their heart because they're thinking like, what have we been doing all along? We've completely rejected this. Could you imagine this? If, if three generations had passed by and somebody finds a dusty Bible on a shelf and they begin to open it about, open it and read all that Christ has done for them, just the horror to think of everything that they have been missing out on. Today, I believe that we are in danger of the same thing. We are rapidly advancing, if you read the statistics, at least here in America, rapidly advancing at a pace of biblical illiteracy within the church, that if we keep it up, we can expect little more than 1% of everyone in this nation to know anything about anything in the scriptures. Just work out the math. See how the decline has gone, gone, particularly over the last 10 years. You can read all about how Bible reading has reached all-time lows. We see it all around us that people really don't know anything about the stories of the Bible. They are no longer willing to even give a hearing to the Word of God. We know that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And yet, I'm told that there are 45%, 45% of evangelical Christians who regularly go to church, 45% open their Bible less than once a week and read it. If we are to remain distinct in this world, heed the warning. If we are to remain distinct in this world, it means that we will need to be transformed daily by the renewal of our minds so as not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Are you opening your Bibles during the week? 
Are you reading your Bible as if your life depends on it? And just by way of a challenge this week, take me up on this. Somebody take me up on this. I got to take myself up on this, this challenge this morning. See if you can make it an entire week. An entire week, for those of you who aren't already doing this, reading your Bible 15 minutes a day. Got it? 15 minutes. I mean, we're talking like, what is that? 196th or something like that of our week? Something like that? 15 minutes a day for an entire week. Read your Bible, and then I want you to report your findings back to me. I want you to report your findings back to me next week. Moving on, the second way in which Judah lost her distinction, it says she refused correction. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 7 says, I said, this is... This is God. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But what did they do? All the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. You might think with all of the warnings that we have read about up until this point, with all of the major prophets and the minor prophets, all of the warnings, it might have led them to conclude that Maybe obedience to God is essential for our survival. But what was the problem then? We see with Judah that they were a people who were too proud to be corrected by anyone. D.L. Moody says that the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. People of Judah loved their sin too much to want to hear from God, to want to be corrected by God. And the problem is, like Judah, our sin will keep us from seeing the beauty of God properly as we should, such that if God were to speak a word of correction, we would probably convince ourselves that our way is better. To be caught up, to be entangled in our sin keeps us from seeing the beauty of God's word. And so it keeps us from wanting to receive correction. The scriptures tell us again, Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. One of the central purposes of Scripture is to correct whatever is wrong in our life and to reconcile it with the character of God, to make us more like God, to make us more like Jesus Christ, to make us complete. We need correction. We need regular correction from God's Word in our lives. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12, it says that at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Judah was living as if it didn't matter 
one bit to God how they lived their lives before him. They had forgotten that righteousness matters to God, that holiness matters to God. And in the scriptures, we find that the pursuit of being holy, the pursuit of, stri- pursuit of becoming more like Christ, being distinct, correcting our ways, is something that all of us have been called to strive for together. Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Are you striving for holiness in that way? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Do you realize that if a church we never allow the word of God to correct us? We never allow one another to come alongside and to to point out how in the word of God it may be contrary to the way that we're living our lives. If we just go on letting everybody do as they please, even in the church, what we will end up with is something that looks nothing different than the world. A place in which many have become defiled. Did you know that for those who are members of this church, In entering into our church covenant, you actually signed up to receive correction from one another. Correction that comes from the word of God. We further engage, it says, to give and receive admonition with meekness and affection. And I will tell you some of the most godly and Christ-like men and women that I have ever met, and I would include some who are in this room this morning, The most godly and Christ-like men and women I have ever met are the ones who never cease to embrace the gracious correction of God's word in their lives. Those who continually ask of God's word, how do I need to change in light of your perfections, in light of your holy character? Proverbs chapter 12, verse 31 says, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof or correction will dwell among the wise. For those of you who like the negative example, go to Proverbs 12.1. Whoever hates correction is stupid. Are you stupid? Do you embrace the correction of God? When you see that from the scriptures your life is out of line with what he has called you to, are you stupid or are you wise? Do you welcome the correction of God in your life knowing that it is actually a gift from God and a means of God's grace to help you experience him more and more? Heed the warning. Finally, it says that she no longer trusted in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Do you know what the first word, they call it even commandment today, the first word of the Ten Commandments that Jewish people would memorize the way that they would order their Ten Commandments? It was not any of the thou shalt, thou shalt not. It was actually this. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt 
out of the house of slavery. Do you know why that was the first word they were to memorize in the Ten Commandments? Because it would establish for them the basis of their devotion to the Lord. It would give them evidence of their God being faithful and how God had rescued them in order that they would then be willing to respond to and obey everything else that followed. He could be trusted. And by trusting in him, they would always find salvation. Today, in the, the, the Christian of the ver version of this might sound like, I am Jesus, the one who saved you from sin and death, the one who proved faithful by rising from the dead. You only live today because I died and I was raised. Your life is in my hand. Do you trust me? God would rescue Judah time and time again, and yet still they would not trust him with their hearts. Is God trustworthy? Is Jesus enough for you to be satisfied? Or do you feel that you need to mix in with him some other gods who can give you what you're really looking for? Zephaniah calls this out in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1 where it says that he will cut off this place from this place the remnant of Baal, those who worship Baal, the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord. Judah was looking for everything else to bring them satisfaction except God. They were even paying lip service, swearing by the Lord, but also on the side saying, but really we want to do what the nations are doing over here. Judah was always running to the other nations for help, for protection, for refuge, because to them, worldly power and wealth looked more like it could protect than the bread that comes from heaven. So rather than seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, having all these things added unto them, it was instead seek everything else. And then when we get in a really big pickle, hope that God will still come through for us when we need him. What about you? Is this the way that you view God today? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting today in your wealth? Are you trusting today in the prospect of a better career? Are you trusting today in some other type of relationship that things will just kind of work out well in the end? Are you trusting in things that will ultimately collapse and fall and rust and break down and leave you empty? Or are you trusting in that which is from the beginning and which will remain forever? God, as we see through the prophet Zephaniah, is going to wipe the slate clean. He's going to wipe the whole earth clean, it says here, in order for Judah to finally get it, to finally see the futility of trusting in all of their false gods. So that's what got them 
into the condition that they were in during this time. No ear for God's voice, no heart to obey it, no willingness to receive his correction, no trust in their Lord, no drawing near to their Lord. And that what I would submit to you this morning would be the recipe for the spiritual shipwreck of God's people. No ear for God's word, no willingness to receive correction, no trust, no drawing near to him. Now, thankfully for us, the story does not end there. What was God going to do about this? How was God going to pour out his judgment for the sins of his people and the sins of mankind, and yet at the same time be true to his character as being a God of mercy, abounding in steadfast love. We know that God is too good not to be merciful. He's too good not to provide for them a path of redemption. Too good not to have a plan to bring about the full restoration of all that God intended for them from the beginning. So I want to read the final 12 verses here, starting in chapter 3, verse 9. I want to read these in full to gain a picture of what God is going to do to provide restoration for his people. Now remember, up to this point, God has essentially said, I am going to judge, judge, judge. I am going to remove what is sinful. I'm going to remove those who exalt themselves above me. I'm going to purge this place of wickedness. And here's what he says next. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. And serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will, he will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame 
and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Just to summarize the highlights. God's people, sinners who deserve God's just wrath, will be made pure. God will do that. They will call upon the name of the Lord. They will serve him with one accord. The proud will be removed and the humble will remain. The Lord will be their place of refuge. There will be no injustice. There will be no more lies. They will sing for joy. Why? Because he has forgiven their sins. God will take away the judgment. And it says that they will be made renowned. They will be made distinct again as he has intended. They will again become reflectors in full of God's glory. This is what God is doing with us if we are in Christ today. This is where we are headed. This is the ultimate end, that we would have a pure speech, that we would be humble before him, that we would follow him all of our days, that we would be distinct from the world. There's only one reference to the book of Zephaniah in the New Testament, and it comes from this final section, and we find it in the book of Revelation where God is giving us a picture of the people of God at the end of time. God provides John with this vision in Revelation 14.5, and it says, it says of the symbolic 144,000 people, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now, as I say this, just ask yourself, is this what I want? Is this what I want to be like? It is these who follow the Lamb, that's Jesus, wherever He goes, these have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is what the scriptures tell us will characterize the people of God on that day. This is their distinction from everyone else. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, following the lamb wherever he goes, no deceit, meaning not even leading other people astray, and blameless, completely pure. If this is what God has called us to, if this is the place to where we are headed, we know we are not there yet, if this is what it looks like when life is truly as good as it can possibly get, then tell me, why are we today so enamored with lower, baser, common, vulgar things. Why are we so complacent? Why do we ignore God's word in our lives? Why do we give the word of God such short, I don't know, whatever you call it, short shrift? What's the word? <laughs> short shrift today in this world. Why do we make so little of it? Have you ever been around a Christian who's acting like the salt and light in this world? There is, for me, nothing more refreshing to see than to see a Christian acting like a Christian. 
pursuing holiness, pursuing purity, offering words of encouragement and words of life. Our greatest distinction as Christians is that our lives have been hidden with Christ in God, that he has taken away our judgment and he has made us us pure. He has redeemed us from the emptiness of this world. We are no longer of this world. We are citizens of heaven who have been called to proclaim his excellencies in everything that we do, in word and in deed. And I can tell you that the more complacent we become in this, the more there is a world around us that is dying without that knowledge, the knowledge of the life that we have all come to know. So I'll leave you with this, dear brother or sister, you have been chosen, you have been called by God, you have been brought from darkness to light to make known the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. To be salt and light in a bland and dark and especially a confused world today. May we not be like Judah, those people who forfeited that honor he has bestowed upon us. May we listen to the voice of God. May we receive with open hands the correction that he brings. May we put our trust in him alone and draw near to him at all times. Christian brother, Christian sister, be distinct.